We are continuing our Advent series this morning as we look at God and us. And we're looking at the incarnation of Jesus and what that looks like. And what we're trying to do through this whole series is to equip you to um, rethink this time of year. And then to redeem this time of year. That as you're um, seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and talking about and preparing for Christmas... That we would redeem it to interpret its meaning and respond in thought, in faith, in attitude, in actions, and then worship. Worship the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. And you know, we're not going to just have you think about this. We're going to actually have you get involved in this. We're going to have you give to this concept of of what it means to, to have Christ with us and uh, one of the ways we do that each year, it's just what we do, is we take a Christmas offering. And 100% of this offering goes outside of this church. It's not doesn't pay for lights or, or salaries or anything within this church. It goes outside. And there's two places that we're investing this in. One is local and one is global. And locally, we're going to help the Topeka Rescue Mission expand their facilities so that they can house and, and uh, provide a home for the homeless. And I don't know if you've ever uh, looked and, and, and seen the blessing that the Topeka Rescue Mission is to our community. But man, I went down there and I walked through the premises there and I talked with the director, uh, Barry Feeker. And I, I do not know of another program like this in our country that's as effective in ending the cycle of, um, of poverty, ending the cycle of really poor decisions in people's lives. And uh, they really love people down there. And so we want to partner with them. And we want to give a portion of this offering to that. And secondly, we want to continue to partner with Trash Mountain Project in the Dominican Republic as we build a technical school there for, for students to learn English and learn how to use a computer. That, we have found, will end the cycle of poverty. But not only that, is it's, a, it's a Christian school that we've now planted a church down there. So we're also developing families and discipling families as we work down there. And so we want to encourage you to, to, um, to spend less this Christmas in order to give more. And we want to be a generous church. We want to be such a blessing to our community and our world that, that even if people disagree and, and uh, do not believe in Christ, they at least see uh, a people who are authentic followers of Jesus Christ. That's what we want to be. I was talking with a couple this, this morning. It was their second time visiting here, and uh, they were kind of new to the church, and I said, you know, this is what we're all about. We are about living authentically what it means to be a follower of Christ, and that's what we're here to do, not just to know these things, but to understand these things and believe these things and then live these things that we're talking about. Last week, we looked that, this, that um, the incarnation is God before us, that Jesus is God before us in creation. He's before us in Passover. He's before us in the prophets, and he's before us in experience. And because he is before us, Jesus is our beginning. He didn't just show up on the scene 2,000 years ago. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end of everything. In the Passover, he is God who forgives us, who redeems us. In the prophets, he is the direction of God, the truth of God, the leadership of God in our lives. And as an example, in experience, he's, he's our example. He is our example in, lives. He, in our lives. He teaches us how to follow him. But to, today, 
uh, Jesus is also God with us. And it's this whole concept of Emmanuel. If you have your Bibles, open up with me to Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Matthew is uh, explaining the birth of Christ. This account of the birth of Christ is in Matthew as well as in Luke. And in Matthew, after the angel uh, tells Joseph to take Mary to be his wife, what was done in in her was uh, she was conceived by the Holy Spirit and she was still a virgin. This is a supernatural event that's happened here. Joseph um, did as he was told. And Matthew kind of steps away and he kind of gives us a, a commentary, a fulfillment of prophecy when he says this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to the prophet. By the way, the prophet was Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the original prophecy was given to Isaiah to give to the king of Judah in 735 B.C., Think about this, 700 years before, more than 700 years before the coming of Christ, this was the prophecy. But to the people in which the original prophecy was given, I don't think they could put it together that this child would be named Jesus. I don't think they put it together. I don't think they could see it. But what did they see? King Ahaz was the king of Judah at that time. There was a huge military threat against Judah as well as Israel, the divided kingdom at that time to the north. Assyria was a major world force. And for Assyria to become and and stay that major force, they had to do battle with Egypt. Egypt was to the south of Israel and Judah. And in those days, for you to to get from one place to, to another with a large group of people a large group of soldiers, you had to cross on land that could sustain the troops. It's interesting, and I I didn't really catch this until I understood the geography of of Israel, in that for, for Assyria to conquer Egypt, the only place they could go through was Israel. Because that was like God promised to Abraham, a land flowing with milk and honey. It it was rich in resources. They couldn't go all around it was desert. You, would, you, you could not sustain troops. So God did that for a reason. He said, when you celebrate life with me and you live with me, you will be a blessing to the nations. All the nations will be blessed because of you. Now, if you walk away from me and you serve other gods and you live without me, I will scatter you among the nations. That's exactly what happened in 722 BC when Assyria came took over the northern ten tribes of Israel and scattered them. To this day, we do not see them. The scattered, assimilated into all the other countries, all the other nations, because they lived without God. And now, so the original prophecy was, Ahab, Ahaz, you will have a son. He will be assigned to you. All commentators believe it was Hezekiah who who had sweeping reforms to bring people back to live with God. He will be a sign. God is with you. Don't cave in. Did, Did Ahaz believe it? No, he practiced life without God. 
735 years later, Jesus was born. He was born in Bethlehem. He was born to a virgin. She gave birth to him. His name, Emmanuel, he is God with us. Throughout his ministry, Jesus said, with me. His exclusive claims was life was to be found in his name. We are to do life with him. We are to believe in him. We are to live for him, not without him. The choice way back with King Ahaz in the book of Isaiah and the choice in the fulfillment of that prophecy in the coming of Christ is the same. Do you want life without Christ? Or do you want life with Christ? By coming to this earth over 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, I am God with you. What are the ramifications of God with us? What we want to do is we want to look right now at seven conditions that are secured by Christ being God with us. And we're going to have a choice. We're going to have a choice as we see what we have with Christ or without Christ. We're going to have a choice of, do I want my life to be lived with Christ? And it's, it's not his issue here. Because, because Christ is, is with us. He's with us right now. It, it's, not, it, it's not that he's unaware of us. It's that we are unaware of him. It's that we can say what we believe in an environment like this, but then we can leave and live as if he is not with us and, and we are not with him. And, and that's the tragedy of, of the result of us getting together to worship each week is that we go out sometimes and we live as if he, we live like practical atheists. Even though we come in here and we look really good and we can dress up for an hour and 15 minutes, that the end result of our time together is that we would take this and go and live with Christ out there. So you're going to be asked to live with Christ. And you're going to be given the option to live without him. I want to kind of give you the perspective of what life without Christ and what life with Christ looks like. The first thing we have without Christ is we have the law. With Christ, we have love. Uh, one book that's just been fascinating to me more recently as I've studied it is the book of Galatians. And in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul kind of crafts out this whole picture of law and love, grace and works. Um, and, and then he says this. He says, when the fullness, this is how he explains the incarnation. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The, the whole scope of this, just follow that progression. The time had, the fullness of time had come, just the right moment in human history, God sent forth his son, who was born of woman, born under the law. The law applied, but he was the fulfillment of the law. And the purpose of it was to redeem those under the law, because we're trapped by the law. In the law, we see the holiness of God. In the law, we see the fallenness of our hearts. And the law was meant to do that. The law was meant to show us sin in our lives. It was a system of regulations that it called us to, to, 
to obey. And, and the whole picture of that is it was a huge burden on us. Jesus Christ came and lived for us. We don't just need his death and we need his, only need his resurrection. We need his life because in his life, as he lived, he lived in perfect obedience to the law. The law was on him. And when he died on the cross, he was the one who died for us and fulfilled the law by his life. So is there anyone who perfectly obeyed the law before Jesus? No. After Jesus, only Jesus. Only in Christ do we have the perfect fulfillment of the law. That was our burden. But because of God's love, us lawbreakers, we could not do it. We could not measure up. We could not meet those requirements. Jesus did. We need him. Without him, we have the law on us. With him, we have the love of God. This story ends adoption as sons purchased out of the law and into the love of God. The law, actually, Jesus redefines the law in saying the greatest two commandments are this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. We're to be, that's our law right now. Is It summarizes all the law, but it encapsulates what's our motivation. We're no longer under the law. We're under the love of God. Secondly, what do we have? Well, without Christ, we have works. With Christ, we have faith. Paul even uh, develops it further in, in this summary. If this is kind of a summary of the whole book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 2, verses, uh, verse 16, he says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith and not by works. You see, without Christ, we have salvation by works. We think that we have to, well, frankly, if we're honest, most of the major religious systems of the world are works-based. They're performance-based. If you come to church, if you do these things, if you give in the offering, if you are a nice person, and, and you look over your life, and you could say you're a righteous person. You've, you've measured up to the requirements of the law. You performed good enough. God then looks down on you and goes, okay, you're good enough. I'm not ticked off at you. Come on in. You're one of mine. That's works-based. Faith is trusting in Jesus to do the work you can't do. Faith is trusting in the only one who could do something, who could save you, and who could live for you in perfect obedience. When I live by works, I snuff out faith. And that's why it's so key for us to get this down, for us to have a defining moment, everyone here, to have a defining moment when you decide, I will not live by works anymore. I'm accepted by faith. Faith in Christ. You know, I, I think about in my own life what, it, what it's like when as long as I build that system of works, I bust my faith in Christ. You are not compared to anyone. And that's how when I live by works, guess what I do? I compare my life with yours. And I can be good. I can be really good. And I can be better than many of you in a lot of areas. Of course, the areas I define I want to be good in. But I can be good and I can base my confidence and I can base my relationship with God. Look, I'm a pastor, man. I'm giving over 10%. Come on, God. You deserve me, man. 
And the reality is, is that's just like filthy rags. I'm not in because I'm not compared to you. God never compares my life with yours. And we shouldn't compare our lives with us. He compares us with Christ. Cricket, cricket. We got nothing, do we? We got nothing. When we're compared with Christ, we see perfection. We see holiness. We see righteousness. We don't see us. And we look in our mirror and we see us for who we are when we compare ourselves with Christ. And then we go, I've got a need. I've got a need. I can only trust in Christ to do something for me I can't do to myself or for myself. With Christ, you move away from works and into faith. Thirdly, without Christ, you live by guilt. With Christ, you live by grace. Guilt and grace. Do you see the progression here? When my life is under the law, my life is based by works. And when I really, really understand who I am, I had a great seminary professor who told me this. You never know how bad you are until you try to be good. You never know how selfish you are until you try to love your wife. You never know how, how, how materialistic you are until you try to give generously. And that's what the law does. It shows us of our need. It shows us how far we fall short. And if I just stick with the law, I'm under guilt and shame. But when I move over to Christ and I realize I'm no longer under the law, I have the love of God in my life. I live by faith and I have the grace of God in my life. Man, it changes you. This is transformational. Life with Christ changes. The, the way you see yourself with God changes the way you view your relationships. You view your purpose. You view your meaning. It's fascinating that in my marriage, when I live by performance, when I live by performance, and, and therefore, pe- you know, people fall short of perfection, I give them guilt. When I live with this guilt, guess what happens to my marriage? I become dissatisfied. I start comparing my wife with my high expectations for her. I quit looking at the mirror at my own problems, and I look at hers. And I judge her for that when I live by performance. With my children, when I live by performance, guess what's important to me? The three A's, the triple A's. Their academics, their athletics, and their attitudes. And so life becomes, how is your day at school? Do you keep your grades up? You got to get grades because you got to get into college because the college will get you into the job that you want so that you can be successful. How'd you do in that heat? Did you, did you win that heat? How's your PR on your time and swimming? How are those things going? And by the way, knock off that attitude. I don't care if you are 15. Don't wear it on your sleeve. Okay, when I am about performance... I give guilt and shame to all the relationships. They are far from perfect. When I build my friendships under performance and guilt and shame, guess what you are here for? You're here to serve me. What can you do for me? So I build my friendships around what you can make me look like. How do I look when I'm hanging with you? Are you embarrassment to me or am I proud of my friends? Because it's what you can do for me. When I look at my job, I'm climbing over to climb on top. You're, You're in my way. You're, uh, help me move on. When, when you hurt me, I, I'm not going to forgive you. I'm going to seek revenge. Because that is what truth is. You messed with me. I will get you back. And I'm quick to judge. I'm quick to be critical. I'm quick to say that sarcasm is a spiritual gift. When I live by guilt, 
when I live by performance. And when you disagree with me, and I live by this, I will be disagreeable back. There will be no gentleness. There will be no respect. You're fair game. You will get my fury. However, when I live with Christ, and I start learning how to love God, and and start loving people the way Jesus loves me, with grace, the same transformation happens. The monster, the monster can change because of Christ. The monster in me can change so that my marriage is unconditional acceptance and love and trust and respect. Where I view my wife as a blessing to my life. I don't view her as perfect because I've looked in the mirror and realized I've got a lot of shortcomings. With my children, I love them and I accept them for who they are, not how they measure up. That means I I check my motives and I don't try to live my life through my kids. That's way too much pressure and guilt on their lives. And I allow God to fashion a heart after them and I pray for a heart of God in my kids. So I don't look at all the other kids and go, well, my kid's, you know, on top of his class and look at him on, on the team. I, I, um, I don't know why I go to the southern accent with that. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I, I love them. I love them. And I speak life into them. And I encourage a heart after God. With, with relationships, instead of what can you do for me with grace, it's how can I serve you? I am not here to be served, but serve. In my job, instead of climbing over to climb on top, my job becomes a platform for, for authentic character in Christ and advancing the gospel. So whatever I'm doing, if I'm collecting trash or I'm leading in a boardroom or I'm teaching in a class or I'm staying at home developing children, my, my, that's, that's a platform for character and the gospel. And when someone hurts me, I'm an example of forgiveness. And when someone disagrees with me, I'm an example of what the New Testament church talks about. And when Paul says, bear with one another, I'm an example bearing with, long-suffering with people. Because it's grace. It's not guilt. And it changes you. It changes you. From law to love, from works to faith, from guilt to grace. And then just in the whole concept of what are you here in life to do? Life with Christ changes that. You move from being pointless to purpose. Without Christ, existence is pointless. And and I've talked to people who've lived away from Christ. They just decide, I'm not going to be a person of that kind of faith. They think that they're not type of faith, whatever, but we all are people of faith. It's just faith without God. What's the overall existence? Why are we here? I don't know. I think friendship to make the best of this mess that we've got. It's kind of a pointless existence. Matthew is constructed, and Matthew even presents this, that because we have God with us, we actually have purpose. In the last chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, 
when Jesus is, uh, after he dies and after he resurrects from the dead and appears to his disciples and over 500 witnesses that he's living, and before he ascends to heaven, he gives them the great commission. In Matthew 28, verse 19, he says there, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, catch this, guys, here it is. Last chapter, I am with you. Emmanuel, God is with us. Always, to the end of the age. The Great Commission here is purposeful. It, it kind of gives us a mission so that we, by be, being missional and obedient to it, we go and we make disciples, we baptize, we teach, we call them to apply the word and remember all times, I am with you. Do you see what's happening? Christ came to show us God is with us. Christ rose from the grave and put the Spirit of God in the heart of the believer and said, because of that, until the end of the age, I am with you. Don't make this about a place. It's no longer about the temple. It's about the kingdom of God in expanding in this world. Go. You're part of, you're part of the God of creation story. God of the universe is inviting you into this story and reminding you, you're never alone. I'm with you. Purpose. This is why you're here. Go make disciples. Teach them. Remember, I am with you, leading you, empowering you. God with us also means that without Christ, we're wandering, and with Christ, we're gathered. One of the great illustrations in in the coming, the predictive prophecy about the coming of Jesus was that this new Messiah, this one who would come, this child who would be born, would be the shepherd of Israel. He would gather the flock again. A lot of the Old Testament prophets were just, they just breathed out the, the frustration of God and the truth of God to, to the priests in that time that had taken their role and their position and exploited the flock and chased the flock and, and obliterated the flock of God. And this new Messiah would come as a shepherd. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 11 says, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead those who are with young. Jesus fulfills this office. When Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, we kind of 2011 go, don't know too many shepherds. What does he mean? In that culture and in that faith, everybody knew what he's talking about. I'm the good shepherd. I will regather this scattered flock of God and I would lead them. You see, the reality is even in our lives is we need to be gathered back to God because on our own, we scatter. On our own, we scatter. You know, I've talked to a lot of people in a lot of different uh, phases and stages of life. And you know what? I've just come back because I've even looked at my, we're all following someone. Even those of us at the top of, of leadership, we, we, we all follow someone because we were followers. We are born followers. I remember talking to a guy who is a CEO. And I mean, all by all of the world's uh, appearance would look like the greatest picture of success. But when I sat down and we were honest together about what's driving us, his father never told him he loved him. His father never told him he was proud of him. His father never told him he was good enough. And here he was overperforming 
I mean, high, high capacity person waiting and being moved and being motivated by words he never heard from his father. Things motivate us. If you're in junior high or you're in high school, the peer influence of, of what your friends think of you, your friends' opinions of you, it's just a stage of life that we've got to learn how to handle at that age because if you don't, if you aren't able to handle that, it will transpire. You will compare yourself with the Joneses for out your life, throughout your life. It's what people think we ought to wear, how people think we ought to talk, what do we think is funny. And we define all that by people's opinions because those are the things that are driving us. And you know what? It's like Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 53, 6. He says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, prophecy for Jesus. That's, the, that's a commentary on our culture today. We've all turned to our own way. We've not wanted Jesus to lead us. We don't want anyone to lead us. We don't like authority, yet things lead us. Opinions lead us. Perceptions lead us. We're always going to follow someone. Jesus says, let me gather you. Let me gather you back. The gathered, Jesus gathered the sheep and laid down his life for them to gather us back to God. With him, we're gathered. Without him, we're wandering. Another thing that is uh, something that God with us gives us is that without, without Christ, we're helpless. With Christ, we have hope. Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 2. I love how he kind of says, this is who you were without Christ. This is who you are with Christ. Now live with Christ. It's the whole concept of Emmanuel that he keeps going over and over to the Ephesian church. And in in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12, he says, remember that you are at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having, I love this, there's three things, having no hope without God in this world. It's kind of like you're in enemy territory, you're without God, and then, you know, the queen mother, you're without hope. You're hopeless, you're helpless. But with Christ, Paul defines it as you now have one hope. You have one hope to which you were called. And in Ephesians 4, verses 4 and 5, he says, there's only one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. He was calling them all to unify around the person and the work of Christ. It's not about your hope, my hope. It's about God's hope through Christ. We're called to rally around that. So what, what clouds hope in our lives? And gives us more of a feeling sometimes of helplessness rather than hope. Well, hope is a a picture of... Hope is based on your picture, your dependence on, on a future reality. So if you believe and you've set hope for something to happen in this world and it doesn't happen, your hope is dashed. You kind of go, I never thought I'd be here. When you lose the job that you thought would give you the career... When you lose the relationship that thought you would give you the marriage, when you lose the, the heart of a child who you thought would be obedient, 
that dashes hope because you put so much security in that picture of the future. And what, what biblical hope does is it lays a foundation for eternity. If, if this is death, biblical hope goes for eternity. The, the mass uh, duration of your existence. The, I mean, beyond compare, your existence is going to have far more hope in eternity than it has right here. Don't put your life, don't set your hope on these things that are constantly in flux. As you set your hope on the only one to save you, set your hope on the only one who can restore you. And the New Testament church believed this. And they didn't set their hope on on their income, their resources, their intellect, their accomplishments, their position in life, their race, their societal tier that they lived in. They set their hope on Christ. And because of it, All those things could flux, but their faith did not. See what you have with Christ? You have hope. You have a hope not only of salvation, but of the complete restoration of all things. Where one day, all the inequalities, all the brokenness, all the struggles, all the evil will be accountable to God and he will make all wrongs right. That's our hope. That's our hope. And because we have that hope, we can live today with the security. The New Testament church died for that hope. They were willing to give up their lives to advance the gospel because they put their, they set their life on that hope because they lived with Christ. You take away Christ from the mix and you don't have that hope. That's the picture that we have. And finally, God with us, well, without him, we have confusion. With him, we have comfort. Here we uh, see in in one of the most well-known passages in Scripture, the 23rd Psalm, verse 4. This is what it says about the Lord is my shepherd. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Have you ever gotten lost? I mean, really lost? We're scared lost. I remember I was four years old, and at Christmas time, I got lost in Target. And at, at four years old, you know, those racks are really tall. And I was caught in the labyrinth of, you know, American consumerism, and I didn't have my mom. And I, you know, my heart rate went up. And I was wondering, oh no, I had pictures of my mom in my mind driving away with all the presents in the car laughing, you know, away from me. And so I didn't know what to do. So I walked to the front of the store and I just went, I can't find my mom. And I remember that lady in just such a great Milwaukee accent. We have a young boy here named Joseph and he's lost. Would uh, the mother of Joseph Ishmael please come to the front, you know? And I was just like, wow, you know, and my eyes got big. And when my mom appeared, it just tears. I'm getting choked from talking about it right now. You know, I'm 46 years old and it's still happening because, you know, I was found by mom again. You know, before that, there was confusion. Little things became larger. Small fears became overprocessed and larger than they really... My mom wouldn't have driven away laughing with the presents in her car, you know? That wasn't reality. 
But sometimes when I live without Christ, that's exactly what happens. The lie becomes a reality of me. And perception starts ruling my life, not truth and reality. With Christ, folks, we have comfort. I'm not talking about being comfortable. That's how America interprets this. this, I am comfortable. No, no. You have comfort. The security of your life is in the comfort of Christ. And, And we still have that. We still have that promise. Do you know the number one command of Jesus? If you were to go and just say, every time Jesus made a command, I'm going to underline it. The number one command is this. Do not fear. Do not fear. To the disciples on a a wind-tossed sea of Galilee, struggling for their, you know, existence, Jesus shows up, calms the storm. Do not fear. To the disciples, freaked out that Jesus was crucified. They can't find the body. He shows up. They freak out. Do not fear. Folks, we have that pattern of fear. The Christian church is really good at anxiety. Man, we get A plus for that. Jesus says to us, do not fear. For I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. It's because God is with us. The question I need to ask is, where are you? Where are you? Are you without Christ or are you with? I just want to encourage you, if, if the left-hand column of your notes is how your life has been lived up to this point, you have an opportunity because Christ came to secure something you could never do for yourself. Christ came in obedience to something you could never obey. He fulfilled the law. He died for your sins and he rose from the dead. And because of that, he promises that life can be with him now and for eternity. It's time for you, just by faith, to submit your life to Christ. To quit being scattered and be gathered to the leadership and the salvation of Christ. You can do that right now by simply saying, Lord, I was without you, but because of Christ, I can be with you. I see my sin and where that's left my life, and I turn from that. I call it what you call it. It's sin, but you died for that sin. And I trust in you right now. I believe you really are who you said you are. And I trust in you. Now, I celebrate you being with me. May I live a life that shows others I'm with you. Hey, you know, as I think about this, think about this next week. When we get together next week and talk about another concept of of the incarnation, I want you to look, what do you want this week to look like? If you could imagine next week with me, what do you want? Do you want a life that that shows that God is with you or that shows that you're without him? When you look, do you want the right-hand column? Do you want love? Do you want faith? Do you want grace? Do you want all those things that we talked about there? I do. I really want to be a man who, who lives with the awareness and the response that through Christ, God is with me. I want my life to look differently. I want, I want to live in the reality of his presence. Do you know that revivals have been started when 
Christians started practicing the presence of God in their lives. One even stemming here from Topeka by Sheldon, who wrote in his steps, was all based around people practicing the reality that God is with us, that Christ is with us. So how would we live knowing that he's with us? The the reality is transformation takes place when we are a church that celebrates Emmanuel. So let's do that. Let's ask God right now for power through his Holy Spirit, the presence of God with us in our lives and help us live this week so that that we celebrate the presence of God with us and people, when they spend time with us, they see that we've been with Christ. Let's pray. Father, as, um, as I've preached this now for the fourth service, I'm always convicted. And as I look at this past week on the times that I've acted like you weren't with me, or I feared because you weren't with me, or I worried about. Lord, I just confess that heart, and I would just confess for all the people in here who've acted like we've lived life without you. We just confess that right now, and we ask you, we don't want to be like that. We want to live life with you. We want to celebrate, amidst all the distractions of our culture, we want to celebrate that you are with us, and we want to live with the confidence and the comfort that you are with us. And because of that, Lord, we want our lives to really reflect more of you and less of ourselves. Less of guilt, more of grace. Less of the law, more of love. Less of helplessness, more of hope. And Holy Spirit, would you move now in us. When we leave this place and we're done practicing church, help us to live and be the church out in our community. For it's in the name of Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that I pray. Amen.